Hello and welcome to the final Magnified of 2022. Earlier in the year on The Last World, I got an opportunity to talk to David MacDonald and Mick Clifford about their book Unlocked, an Irish prison officer's story. David been the prison officer, Mick Clifford, of course, been one of Ireland's best journalists. It was an extraordinary story in the book and the interview on radio simply wasn't long enough to get to so many of the issues. So, I asked both David and Mick to come to my kitchen table and discuss in greater detail the context of the book in this edition of Magnified. So Michael Clifford, David MacDonald, thank you both very much for joining me here at my kitchen table. I spoke to you earlier this year when the book came out, Unlocked, an Irish prison officer's story. But we didn't get enough time on the last word to go through all of the stories and all of the issues that come out in it. So we'll take more time today. And I'm going to start with you, Mick, because you're a journalist. You're a friend of mine from going back decades. Why was your particular interest in this, doing this book? Is this a just a good story put in front of you or do you see something about the Irish prison system that had interested you that you wanted to find out more about? Well, Matt, I've been writing about prisons for years and I suppose in the course of that I came into contact with Dave and, and we kept in touch in the nature of these things. But we were having the chats the odd time and the more Dave spoke about his experience, um, it just really hit me that it was something that had never really been out there in terms of the various issues to do with prisons, in terms of situations like, for instance, the way the subversives, as they were called, the paramilitaries were kept in Port Leash and the changes in the prison system over the decades. And I just thought it was really interesting. And as well, because I've written so much in prisons, I think it's really important that there is some knowledge among the public of what actually goes on in there. Because politically, it's something that is very much kept over in a dark corner for the simple reason that uh, in politics, particularly in the Department of Justice, prisons are something that, as far as they're concerned, can only bring bad publicity. It's also something that the general public does not interact with, therefore it's no good for votes. So it's kept out of the spotlight. And I think one of the problems with the system is because it's kept out of the spotlight, it's far, it's not in the place it should be in. Do you come from this no, so sort of bleeding heart liberal approach, is it? No. That you sort of feel that all the prisoners in the country are victims of Absolutely this not. society? No, 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 no. It's, it's, from, it's from a position of what is the best way to run a penal system? Now, if somebody thinks the best way to run a penal system is to use that old phrase, hang them and flog them, throw prisoners into jail, particularly those convicted of violent crime, and let them suffer, to use that word. And one of the things I really came across uh, working with Dave was he points out that people, some even people who have that attitude, they don't realise that the mere... Uh, taking away of somebody's liberty, what it's involved, what's involved in it physically and mentally is so big that that's an issue. But beyond that, allegedly, the the so the, the the objective of the penal system is to punish, yes, but also to ensure that when people come out, they can in some way contribute to society and not, on the most basic level, commit crime again. So if you've that kind of enlightened approach, then everybody wins. Um, when you go along that way, even we see recently there are changes brought in to try and stop people being sentenced to uh, less than 12 months and it's not worth the while. And a huge number of people are sentenced to less than 12 months. And all those things, they come together to have some kind of an enlightened approach. Can I ask, is any of this also, 
your enlightenment in this formed by the fact that your father was a judge. Did he send many people to jail? Do you know, I'm sure he did. But, I mean, I, I, you know, that, that didn't... He was involve, in a district court. He was so in a when, district court, So yeah. that would have been much shorter sentences, yeah. if any, probably. Yeah, but that, to be honest with you, that didn't, um, that didn't impact on, on how I felt about the thing at all, to be honest with you. I came to this much later in a professional capacity. It wasn't of interest to you when you were growing up at home, what Not. your dad was doing in sending people to prison or finding them or whatever. Not it? particularly, no. I, n- I never went down that route, so it, did, it didn't Maybe did it subliminally affect but you? Jesus, Matt, it could get very fried in here altogether, <laughs> like before we finish. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, tell us, why did you decide to do the book with Mick? It was actually Mick's idea, one of his better ones, that he came out and he said, look, there's a story here. Um, it took me all of a second to say yes to the book. And then over COVID, we worked for the best part, I suppose, Mick, what, nearly two years um, putting this together uh, bit by bit. Um, we had it checked. Everything that I is in the book is very honest. I live in a place called Abbey Leaks, which is just outside Port Leash. Port Leash is a really garrison town. I meet 20 prison officers every day I go into Port Leash. So we have nothing in there that anyone turn around and say, it's not true. Okay, but are you allowed under, is there an official secrets act or something that applies to prison officers that you're not supposed to actually reveal the secrets of what goes on in Ireland's prisons? Yes, Matt. When you join the prison service, you sign the secrets act and um, you're still bound by it. But um, we were careful, and um, the, the, the lawyers for Penguin and Sandy Cove, who printed the book, were also very careful. Uh, nobody from the prison service has come to me and said to me, we're going to take you away and put you behind bars because you broke the rules. So, uh, so far, so good. Yeah, are you also not more fearful, perhaps, of some of the thugs that you write about in this? Some of them are dead, so you don't have to worry about retribution from beyond the grave. But some of them are still alive. Some of them are, like, some of them are, and some of them are still locked up, and some of them will probably be locked up till I'm dead, um, because they won't be seen the light of day anytime soon. There's, prisoners are a lot more intelligent, some of them, not all of them, but some of them, um, than people give them credit for. You know, we see a lot of these kind of tugs on TV and, um, you know, TV shows that portray criminals as being kind of almost stupid. Um, They're not. I wouldn't be of any great interest to them. Um, I wouldn't be worth it. They actually enjoy the limelight. They love the Sunday world. The Sunday world gives them nicknames. They love, you know, seeing themselves, whether it be called the Toss or, or the Dawn or whatever it might be. The Sunday world is their Bible. And they can't, if they get into the Sunday world for what, any reason, doesn't matter what, or good, bad or different, they're delighted. There are some prisoners that, uh, very few prisoners that in 31 years that I was actually afraid of. It's not that it's not a job that, I, that I'm, I'm certainly not a hard man or anything like that, but there are some prisoners that I would, if I saw them on the street, I'd disappear. But there's very few. Um, the likes of Warrendon Bell, for example, he's going to be in prison for a long time. I've never met a stronger prisoner in my life. He told me he's going to kill me. Uh, he's made me that promise and I believed him. You know, I really did believe him that if he could get his hands on me, he would kill me. Why would he want to kill you? Um... Warren thought he was above the law of the prison and um, I was in charge of the operation support group and part of that is that we do uh, targeted cell searches. Warren didn't like being searched. So I had to send a CNR team, that's a control and straight team, into him. And Warren is so big and strong that handcuffs don't work very well. You can actually bend them. So we use ties, cable ties, strong ones. And um, I put Warren, when the CNR team had him pinned down, I put the cable ties on him. Uh, we brought him to reception, we searched the cell, we found what we were looking for, 
and Warren wanted out of these cable ties which were tied behind his back and the only way I would do it is when I kind of said Warren on your knees face the wall make sure there was someone on the cell door and I cut them and before Warren could get up off his knees and get at my throat I was out of the cell and the cell was locked and from that he's taken a, quite a dislike to, to me Remind me why he's in prison He uh, killed a guy um, he'd been in, He's been in prison in and out on a regular basis and you know we'd Mick was talking there about sort of hinting on rehabilitation. Rehabilitation doesn't, absolutely does not exist in our prison system. It's a, it's a myth, complete myth. But Warren actually killed a guy. He actually met him physically to death, um, a low-level drug dealer who he just either owed money to or he owed money to him. And in a park, he was a father of three and Warren just literally pulped him to death on a, a green in a housing estate. But talk to me a little bit about rehabilitation. So you say it doesn't happen in our prison system. Is it that it doesn't work or that no effort is made? It, it, there's not. You couldn't say that there's completely no effort. I mean, we do have things like um, we have education within the prison system. We have workshops where we try and teach prisoners certain skills. But there, it's minuscule. Um, anyone that thinks being in prison is a cushy number and you'll often hear that, you know, it's too good for them. It's, and certainly if you're the victim of crime, I could see why you would think um, that this could be a cushy, safe, relaxed, almost a holiday camp for them. It's anything but. Their liberties are taken away. Out of cell time in Irish prisons probably averages maybe six hours a day. The other rest of that time is banged up in a cell that's maybe eight foot by six foot wide, possibly in with another person who you wouldn't actually know. You're... Um, sharing the same airspace. You have the smells, the toilet is in the cell. So if one of them is using it, you there's zero privacy. Um, so there is, I suppose, a small attempt, but you've got to take, Matt, that each prisoner in this country is costing the state approximately 120,000 a year. That's the figures from IPS. If you go to Port Leash Prison, which is a high security prison, that figure doubles. That's a lot of money. And if you're putting someone in prison that's a, a shoplifter or someone that's on drugs and he's doing what we call the jump offers at the counter to get us some money to get us fixed for the day and he gets a 12-month sentence, he's costing the state exactly the same amount of money as someone doing a life sentence. So like so Brian Meehan is costing the state 120... He's in Port Leach Prison, so he's costing the state about 200000 a year to keep locked up. Is that not a good investment to keep people safe from people like him? You can have that lock up and keep them locked up for a lot less. You cannot treat every single prisoner the same. And like Mick, I am no bleeding heart. I have had, in my career in the OSG, had over 400 people arrested and taken away in cuffs from the prisons. I have lost count of the number of prisoners I would have put into what we call back then strip cells, now they're called special observation cells, where I would have had them stripped bollock naked, put into a cell with a pair of jocks and what's called a fireproof poncho with a mattress and a cardboard pot to pee in. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a bleeding heart. I'm really not. But you cannot treat every prisoner the same. The, every prisoner is not a Brian Mean or a John Gilligan or a Dutchie Holland or Paul Ward there are, you know, or Brian Rattigan. There, there are an array of prisoners, of people. They're human beings. And whether we like it or not, they are ours. <laughs> But Mick, what do you think about the rehabilitation efforts? And also what some people might argue that there are some people who are beyond rehabilitation, that they are just bad. Yeah, there's no question about that. 
but I think you're talking about a minority of people. I mean, forget the exact figure how many people are, are locked up, it's about 3,000. But I mean, you're talking about a small minority that are beyond rehabilitation. But for most people, it's there. And I mean, even there's a review of the whole penal system uh, came out there in late August. And that's, I recall one of the statements in it that the, the primary purpose of the penal system is to, I don't rehabilitate the word used, but that was the inference. And that's not done because it's too expensive. And, and that's to a large extent. And there is an attitude that um, in terms of the public, they, they would believe that it's not worth their while. But, I mean, these things have been... And I know we looked at the Nordic countries for everything, but it is fairly straightforward. Yeah, because the recent reviews on what Justice Minister Helen McEntee has been saying about lengthening sentences in particular for people who have committed murder or other serious crimes, yeah. it does strike me that, you know, for all the talk about rehabilitating people for their own benefit, that most people would think, well, it's for our safety, that if these people are left out of prison again, if they've seen the error of their ways or have reformed, at least they're not going to be a danger to people again. They're not going to be a danger to people. They can actually contribute to society, and hugely. They're not going to be in the recidivist category. They're not going to commit further crime and be another, and, and therefore, often in terms of violent crime, create further victims, and on top of that, be a huge draw on, on the public purse. But then, Dave... And we'll bounce across so many things in this conversation, I hope. But uh, young people going into prison, how often does it happen that the prison actually becomes a training ground for them for future crime? Very often. Um, like, there, there's a hierarchy within the prison system. So you get the prisoner, like of Brian Meehan. Um, he will actually, is a drawer, because he's a bit of a legend. He's not, like... Yeah. I, Sorry, what, why isn't it? For people who are not familiar with who Brian Meehan is, just give us a quick potted history of him. Uh, Brian Meehan, John Gilligan, Dutchie Holland, Paul Ward, they were a gang back in, I think it was the 80s, Matt? The early 90s. 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 Um, they were, kind of took over the, the whole drug running of in Ireland. They made vast amounts of money. Um, I had, in my time in the prison, I was worked for a while as a censor and I would have seen videos of books of evidence of me and Gilligan and company um, having this massive, lavish lifestyle. Like, I mean, millionaire, beyond millionaire stuff. Um, they're probably, infamously or famously, I don't know how to word it, but Veronica Gearn, the journalist who was sadly murdered, um, Brian Meehan is, was convicted of that. Um, John Gilligan, everybody believes, um, was behind it. Um, even if he wasn't, he viciously assaulted uh, Veronica about a year prior to her death. It was back in 1995, September 1995. Yeah, so I've met John Gilligan and Brian Meehan and Paul Ward and Dodgy Holland and all these people on many, many, many occasions. Gilligan is a tug who can turn on a sixpence. One minute he can be coming across as charming, the next minute he will just snap and become extremely violent. Brian Meehan is, you know, they call him the tosser, he's, but he's, he's very mannerly. He's very easy to deal with in a prison environment because people like Meehan don't carry out the acts themselves. They always have these underlings, these newbies that come into the prison that you just mentioned that he will take into his fold. At the time, and maybe it's all gone by this stage because Mean has been in quite a long time, um, Gilligan, Mean, Ward, Holland, they all had money. And money talks in a prison the same as it does on the outside. So they would, you know, literally be able to organise gear to get into the prison, as in drugs. 
um, maybe give a helping hand to a girlfriend on the outside. The prison system has goes up and down like a roller coaster. There's been times where it's been at a low where the likes of Gilligan and Mean where did she run the show? And Gilligan would have did things like order in hundred steaks because of someone's birthday and they would be delivered to the prison and the prison kitchen would cook them to order and they'd be dished out. Now after you know um, after the infamous phone call to the Joe Duffy show by John Daly that changed and the prison management the IPS put a stronger governor in place. Yeah I'm just going to ask and you've sort of explained why it is younger people sort of fall under the spell of the wealthier drug dealers or whatever in the prison. But why was this allowed inside? And was this regarded that if it was stopped that you would have more problems to deal with? Yeah, basically the prison, as Mick said again, is behind walls and it's kept in a dark corner. And all they want is to unlock at eight o'clock in the morning, lock up at eight o'clock at night. And if nothing happens, that's a good day. So things like rehabilitation, not really there. And giving the prisoners what they want keeps a lid on everything. So it looks like it's all been run very, very well. But giving prisoners the likes of Gilligan powers like that, it's not running the prison. That's not how prisons should be run. But then you said one thing about having steaks coming in to be cooked to order, but what about the likes of drugs or mobile phones? The type of things that when we hear stories about sort of searches and seizure tends to get the public very irate. That creates this impression of a soft life inside in the prison. Yeah, the, it, as I say, it's a bit of a roller coaster. There's periods where things are kept very strict and then depending on the management structure that's in place at the time, things can get very, very lax. Drugs are, it, it, they're not turned a blind eye to. There isn't a thing that, um, say, Brian Ratigan's sister is coming in to visit him and she gets indicated on by the drug dog we don't let her in but prison management don't like that because then Ratigan will inevitably get something done within the prison to cause some harm may not be physical on a prison officer but he cause some form of disruption whether it be telling 20 prisoners you're not going into your cell at half seven tonight stay out and they'll have to be forcefully put in simply because his sister got um, indicated on by a drug dog um, it takes strong management to deal with that and put Brian Ratigan uh, and his like down. So, so in some cases, the tail is wagging the dog here. And that is not a good thing when you're dealing with tugs. And that's what a lot of these people are, just simply tugs. Mick, what did you make of all this when you started getting all these stories told to you by Dave? I mean, I was fascinated by it, um, to be honest you, Matt, and, and a, a bit appalled by it in some ways. But, like... I suppose when you see when Dave has such a handle on the thing, there's a realisation that you can make inroads like him in, in the operational support group. They definitely made huge inroads in stopping the flow of contraband, particularly drugs and phones into the prisons. Notwithstanding that, there's two realities. Unless you have something like the Supermax in the US, there's going to be drugs coming in. And do you go to the extent that you're such an inhumane and even more expensive uh, type of scenario to stop that? That's the first thing. And the second thing is within it, it's very, no, no more than if you go to some of the disadvantaged areas in any of the big cities, you're going to find drugs, you're going to find gangs congregating around particular individuals. You're going to find it in there and they're going to be able to wield some power. Now, 
Dave and, and, and the OSG do great work in, in uh, minimising that power. But it's always going to be there, I think. It's a very difficult thing to break up. It's part of any kind of gathering of human beings in society, particularly those who, was, as Dave says, Latimer thugs within that disposition. But you also have an awful lot of prisoners who come in there and they have no choice. And like one of the stories Dave said, I mean, the, the obvious one, the guy arrives in straight from the court, he's sentenced to a relatively short sentence or whatever, and then in, in walk two very friendly prisoners. Do you want to bang off the phone, ring your wife, ring your girlfriend, let them know you're all right, thanks very much, takes the phone, just very decent fellas. Uh, they come back in the morning, that'll be what? 150, 200 euro, he falls off the bed, he doesn't have it, well, you're going to have to do what we tell you in order to work off the debt. And immediately people are hauled into that environment. And uh, as I said, Dave and them, they can make inroads, but you're never going to eradicate it. What about conjugal visits, either officially or unofficially? Um, the really, the only conjugal visits that used to take place was with the subversives. Um, we were told to turn a blind eye. So with the subversives, it wasn't um, like a, an ordinary visiting box where you'd have six or eight visitors either side and six or eight prisoners the opposite side. It was one-to-one -one in kind of a cabin pack type scenario with a table and two, a couple of chairs. Um, so on that visit, I was a relatively young officer when this, because this is all changed after the Good Friday Agreement. But you go into the visiting box with a copy of the examiner, you take it out and you opened it wide and you turned a blind eye to, and m many... So you're in the room with them? You're in the room with them, and... <laughs> the broad <laughs> thing, yeah, gives a and screen. You're try I mean, I got really good at crosswords, because <laughs> they had to do them, but the, they, like, there's many a baba, whose I promise has been um, made, is that the right word, made, but brought created, in, created <laughs> in a visiting box in Portlaoise Prison. Um, that would be a given because a lady, you might have a prisoner in there doing 10 years and his wife would come in religiously every Saturday to visit him and 10 months after he'd been in prison, she, you know, you might, you'd see the bump and the bump would be getting bigger and bigger and then there'd be the little party, a celebration of the birth of the child. So he's in prison, it's his child. There's no ifs or buts about that because the subversives, if someone else's, they would get a bullet. Um, and, um, and there would be celebration. So he's in the prison, she's coming to visit him, so there's only one place they can do it, and that's the visiting box. Now, they were very... And were they, would they not ask you to please leave the room? No. <laughs> no, they didn't. You didn't look... It, they were discreet. There would be a certain amount of... Um, so, how we, sounds of passion. Yeah, that would go on. Um, there'd be a certain amount of that. It was always pretty quick. Then again, the prisoner mightn't have had sex for quite a long, long time. Um, so it used to be quite quick. Um, they would normally wear, she would, the female visitor would wear maybe something like a, a skirt. Um, I don't know whether there was anything underneath the skirt or not, but a skirt, and he'd always wear a tracksuit bottom. So it was all done pretty fast. There's a serious point about that, though, Matt, the, the whole subversive thing, not exclusively about the conjugal right element, but also the way they were let run their own Oh, I want to get to that, landings. yes. But the, the serious point about it is, if you contrast it with the way subversives were dealt with in the North, and we know how that ended it up, it ended up with the hunger strikes, it ended up with giving a massive boost to the provisional movement and what have you. The, 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 the allowances that were made down here we can say, you know, they were given a softer time, if you want to put it that way. But in the context of 
what happened with prisoners in the north, you'd have to say the, the authorities, the successive governments or whatever, were pretty right to do it that way. They weren't going to give hostages to fortune by creating a major issue around them. No, there, there was a lot. How of much that might have been created, though, by fear for the safety of prison officers outside the prison if they tried that. to enforce a tougher regime? And we know Brian Stack was murdered by the IRA um, after coming out of National Stadium. He, he was shot in the neck. Absolutely, I'd say that was definitely some of it. But there's no, in my mind, politically, they were certainly correct to follow that route because they gave no chance of martyrdom. Notwithstanding in the 70s, and Dave goes into this too, initially there was a lot of violence against the subversives in there and that kind of thing. Or There certainly was a harsh regime. So you both use the word subversives. I, I get it from Dave. That's the word, <laughs> the word they use in prison. Yeah, yeah that, that's the terminology we use for, say, IRA, INLA, these people, the, the you know, the... Desi O'Hare's uh, Peter Rogers of the world that were locked up at the time. Again, there's a difference, isn't there, between some of those who were imprisoned in that some were genuinely ideologically motivated and regarded themselves as fighting a war. There were others who were just basic psychopaths and thugs who perhaps used the cause of Irish freedom as an excuse for their dreadful behaviour. Yeah, we, we used to compare them to a religious order. You had people in there that really believed and there were people in there that just were there because of side benefits. So you had, very, they see us, saw themselves as soldiers of war and they had their own command structure. structure. So when I went to Port Leash first as a youngish officer, I didn't deal with, speak directly to any of the subversives, IRA, INLA. How it worked was they had a commanding officer on each landing and then an overall CO, commanding officer, who would speak to our chief officer directly. And that was it. We didn't speak with them. The commanding officer then at night time, for example, would bring all his people, his so-called troops, in their eyes they were prisoners, in their eyes they were soldiers, to attention using Gaelic to the cell door to come to attention and he'd give the command about turn. If we took one inch onto the landing, before he did that, they wouldn't go in. So we'd have, and the other problem was, Matt, that in an ordinary prison setup, you might get three, four prisoners kicking off. Um, that's easy to deal with because we have the numbers to do it. In Portlaoise Prison, if they decided to cause trouble, all 400 of them would be working together. That's not easy to deal with at all. So Portlaoise Prison was set up back then. You had a massive amount of prison staff per ratio of anywhere else in the country to, to prisoner. You also had the Gardaí inside in the prison. So for every prison, two prison officers, there was one member of a Gardaí Shiakana working inside the prison. And then you had 100 soldiers based, camped in the prison, in Portlaoise prison, which you still have today. The, the army are still there. to leave when your shift was finished but did you feel a certain degree of being almost imprisoned during your time when you were in there? 
Well, Portlaoise Prison especially, because you go to Mountjoy Prison, from the time you hit the main gate of Mountjoy to the time you could be on a landing, you might go between three and four gates. When you went to Portlaoise Prison to get from the main gate to, say, E1 landing, which would be the nearest, you went through 14 different gates in what's called an airlock system. So one gate would open, you'd move in to an area, and that gate then has to close before the next gate can open. So it was very claustrophobic. And some of the posts in Port Leash back then were mind-numbing, boring. Um, you weren't allowed to have anything like this, a transistor radio or read the newspaper, except on the visiting boxes. And that was the only <laughs> place you could read the newspaper. But they were... There was posts there, and a lot of people came out of there mentally scarred out of Portlaoise Prison. Like, I live very close to Portlaoise. I would have known, I would have gone to school with uh, fathers and mothers that worked in Portlaoise Prison. I've worked with a lot of people from there. I'd know them quite well. Not everyone came out of that job um, unscathed. A lot of them came out of there very mentally in a bad place. Um, There was, back then, alcohol was consumed in large quantities. Once you'd finish your shift, you go to the pub. Yeah, and it even got to the stage that when if there was trouble in the prison and the staff might be there till 11 o'clock at night, one or two of the pubs of town would be called and say, told, stay open. And a lot of the time, the guards would turn a blind eye to it and prison officers would go there and they might go in at 11 and they might stay there till half seven in the morning and go straight back to work. It was a tough... They, but they were tough men. They were now... These guys, they weren't picked for their... I'm not saying that there's anything stupid about them, but they were picked for their brawn. I'll come back to the IRA and the Desi O'Hares of the INLA and their like in a moment, but why did you decide to take up this job? I lived 300 metres up the road. My mammy wheeled me down the pram and said, there you go, son, that will be a great <laughs> building, that's your, there lies your career. No, I, I went to school with lots of prison officer sons. I actually used to pass by the prison 10 times a day, going to school, coming home. And I worked as a barman, you do the usual things that you do with summer jobs. Um, and as I got a bit older, I even played maybe a bit of, they had, you know, um, back in the day, the, the what was it called? The uh, factories, football teams, there was a big T league going. And they were a very close-knit bunch. And um, I got married. And Back then, there wasn't the amount of jobs as there is now. I mean, there's an array of jobs now, but then very, very few. So the prison was, it was secure. Um, It was well paid. I got well paid for my time there. And um, there was a kind of a camaraderie among the prison officers. But were you ever anxious? Did you ever feel in danger or threatened, particularly given that during the 1970s, the IRA did not regard the state as a formal entity and regarded prison officers, Garda Shikhan or the army as being illegitimate. Yeah, they did, but we had very little dealings with them. See, they knew everything about us, you know. Um, I mean, the few times they would talk to you would be to intimidate you, but they did it in a very clever way. So they come up and they say, hiya, Matt, um, your young lad has played really well last week in the Phoenix Park. He's, tell you, he's, he's going to be under 10 next year. Um, He's uh, got a great career in front of him. And they'd smile and walk away. Or they come up and they congratulate you on your new car and call out your reg and walk away smiling. It was their way of saying, we know everything about you. Port Leash Prison, unlike other prisons, we only addressed, the prison officers only addressed each other by first names. Everywhere else, it was Mr. Cooper, Mr. Clifford, Mr. McDonald. But in Port Leash, we would go Matt, Mick, David, because we're trying to keep anything that we could away from them. Um, but they knew everything. They had a very good network on the outside. They could find out anything they wanted about you. But did I feel afraid? No, not really. 
it becomes a job, like an ambulance driver who goes to the scenes of a car accident or a fireman who goes to a house fire where they can be faced with horrific scenes. So you just get used to it. Okay, but what... What type of person do you have to be to be a good prison officer? What are the characteristics? You have to be able to look at prisoners as human beings. And not every prison officer can do that. Um... There's a new governor in training put in. He's, um, he was actually ex-army from the Cora, Dave Clark, <coughs> excuse me, who said, in the army, 90% of the time is training for the military and 10% is what they call operational. In the prison service, he said, 95% is operational, 5% is training. But he said the problem is that people take up these jobs, these roles like prison officers. They're secure, they're reasonably well paid, they find themselves down with mortgages, then they find themselves in a job that they're not suited to be in, but they have no way out because they have a mortgage to pay, a family to feed or whatever. And he's tried to change that around. Yeah, would there have been many people in the prison service who you think were the wrong type of people to be there? I mean, and I would say that, you know, it happens in all walks of life. I, mean, I suppose there would have been many of us maybe innocently growing up thought all Gardaí were going to be good, upstanding people. And then you find out as you become an adult, oh, such and such, you know, has managed to become a Garda. How did that happen? And then you find out things about a small minority of Gardaí who get in. Does the same happen in the prison system? I'd actually say, and it'd be conservative, um, number, I'd say 20% of prison officers that are in the prison, working in prisons today shouldn't be there, for themselves as much as anything, they just shouldn't be there like when you're dealing with a prisoner, if I walked off down a landing or a stairwell and I brush off a prisoner, I have no problem saying sorry, or excuse me, none even if I was to go into a cell to take him out at 7 o'clock in the morning for a search I'll go in and I'll do it nicely, I'll shake him wake him up, come on Cinderella, off we go um we do it nicely first. If that doesn't work, then we change it and do it another way. But you'll get prison officers that address you know, this thing of touch on horse. And they see prisoners as they have to be aggressive immediately. And really what they're doing is they're trying to conceal their own fears. Um, so the first thing you have to understand is you're dealing with human beings. Whether you like them, what they're in for, it's irrelevant. They're still humans. And if you treat a human in a derogatory way, they're going to react Badly, and if you do it in front of their peers or their co- or their colleagues, they have to react or they look weak. So there's a, a good whack of prison officers really shouldn't be there. Now, having said that, there's a lot of prison officers that do a fantastic job day in day out, both men and women, uh, very professional. But unfortunately, there would be a serious amount that just should not be in that ch- in the job. What you make of that, Mick? I mean, what can be done to sort of weed out people from a job to which they're not suited? Uh, because it might be hard to get replacements. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think the way Dave describes it very well, I mean, you, you have the combination, he says, the capacity to treat people as a human being, to have emotional intelligence around it, and at the same time, not in any way to be physically intimidated. Now, I don't think Dave mind me saying it became obvious to me, he had those kind of attributes, and that's why he made him the prison officer he is, but I wonder to what extent um, a large number have. It's not an easy thing to have like that to have all those attributes and as Dave says some people just get into it it looks like handy for the money or whatever reason but you know you, you, you need to and the other element that of course is training even if people don't that you have the capacity to train this the human empathy is something that I've discussed with you previously on the last word Dave but I do want to get back into the story because I think it is deeply affecting and moving about the men with AIDS back in the 1980s in Mount Joy who geez, were treated dreadfully, weren't they? They were. Um, 
you know, look, looking back on things, you know, in, when you go back on history and you look back on some things that were done, you think, God, that how could that have happened? But it did. It was a knee-jerk reaction from the prison system. Uh, AIDS came out. It was back then. It was as big probably as COVID was, to, you know, to a lot of the people now. Um, Celebrities were dying from it, the likes of Freddie Mercury from Queen, um, people like that were, you know, passed away from AIDS. Um, and there was this knee-jerk reaction was, get all these prisoners to test positive, take them and put them into two areas in Mount Joy. One was called the B base, which is the basement underneath the B wing. And another place was called the SEG unit, which would have been a place that used to house um, prison staff in the day, single prison officers, and where famously Pierpoint used to stay when he came over to check someone out for the, the drop and the, the hangman, Pierpoint. And there were horrible conditions. Like the base, for example, was rodent infested. There was no natural light, not that there's a whole lot of natural light in the prison anyway, but very, as you can imagine, it's, it is what it is. It's a basement. So the windows would have been maybe two foot, but barred and tilted towards the yard, but literally no natural light. No one sells sanitation at all. Um, the worst possible thing for people with the immune condition that they had as they were physically deteriorating to be put into those circumstances, yeah. just, it sounds absolutely abhorrent. Yeah, well, see, because of where they were put, everything then changed for them because their visits were curtailed so that they're on death's door and they can't really see their loved ones. You know, the, a lot of these, if not all of them, would have been drug addicts. So their access to getting any type of fix because they're out of the general population became a, a lot more difficult. Um, they're out of cell time because there was no facilities for them. There was one small yard, probably 20 foot by 20 foot, surrounded by razor wire um, and steel, uh, steel panels, and then razor wire on top. And cockroaches the size of mice, um, like it was filthy. Um, I remember doing nights on the base one night and we had to do a thing called a clock which was kind of a peg that was hanging down to make sure that you were doing your checks on the landing and I actually saw the wall move <laughs> I know this might sound ridiculous but the back wall of the base moved and I thought I was imagining things and next thing I realised it was mice thousands of them not just hundreds <laughs> like the whole wall just moved um, you would think you were shot sometimes because the cockroaches are so big you stood on one by mistake you get that big click and these prisoners had nothing, they saw themselves as having nothing to live for. So they were, could become quite troublesome. And a lot of it was just um, because they were being treated, basically being punished beyond punishment. And we tell the story in, in the book Unlocked about I taking a guy over to the Matter Hospital, which is directly across the road. T tell it again, because I think it is very upsetting. Well, I told the story, but Mick Clifford is the one who made it very, very real. Nobody could have done it like him. Um, it was common back then because of where the matter is located. It's uh, both Mount Jai Prison and the Matter Hospital are located on the North Circular Road. So we would often, if the prisoner could walk, basically, we would just cuff him and we'd walk him across as opposed to taking him in a car or a prison vehicle. Um, we brought this young guy over, I'd say somewhere in the region of either late ni 19, maybe 20 years of age, that sort of age. And we went into the uh, doctor's consult the office and the doctor consulted his chart, left. There was three of us. There was me who was cuffed to him and two others. Um, doctor came back after maybe 10 minutes and he asked us, could we leave? And in the room that we were in, there was a window and I just talked to the prisoner, not to the doctor, and I just said, look, you know I can't. I nodded to my two colleagues. They went outside the door and waited. And the doctor then, in no uncertain terms, told them, 
your clock is ticking, we're talking months. And made him understand it as best he could. And he was, you know, he, would, he, he did his job professionally. He was nice. He was pleasant as one can be telling someone you're going to be dead in three months. Um, we came out of the hospital and I gave him a cigarette. And I, we both had a cigarette standing just outside the, the hospital before going back into the prison. Because as soon as we brought him back in, we'd have to bring him through reception and have him strip searched. And all, even though we're with him all the time, the same routine applies. And he just said to me in colourful language, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm fucked, aren't I? And I didn't answer him that because I had no words. The conversation went on. He had three kids. So one thing that was in my mind was I was bringing him back to this hellhole where he was going to be there pretty much till he either got temporary release or released to a hospice. As it turned out, in within about eight to ten weeks, he was brought to a hospice in Blanchestown where about three, four weeks later he died. Um, he had three kids. I honestly can't remember whether he was actually married or just with a partner. So we brought him back. I remember putting him into a, this cubicle, the strip search him, um, uh, which might sound ridiculous when you're actually with him all the time. But um, he was, and he was starting to fall to pieces. He didn't cause me any trouble. He didn't cause me anything. He was just absolutely bet. So it's hard to imagine now telling someone you're going to die in three months and then bring him back put him into a filthy cell on a filthy landing that's rodent infested food is horrible no real access to much to his kids or his partner and he's basically waiting there doing the same routine maybe out of cell four hours a day rest of the time locked up with his own thoughts and in the base they were all kept in single cells because they were HIV so he's sitting there with his own thoughts Um, there was no TVs either there is now but there wasn't then so back then, during this, they hadn't got televisions. They might get a book, but it'd be kind of a little trolley that come around with maybe a dozen books on it. You pick a, a novel. Some can read and some can't. And um, then when he really got very, very bad after the hospice, he was a drug addict. And his crimes were not overly violent. Now, that's easy to say when if you're just... 18-year-old shop girl that he jumps over the counter to rob the till and threatens her with a hammer or whatever it might be. But he wasn't fighting for firearm offences or anything like that. He was a, for want of a better word, he was a junkie who needed to get a fix. And even back then, like you're talking about someone that's on heroin today, needs 150 euros a day, seven days a week, 365 days, just to keep themselves on a level playing field. So it's an expensive you know, hobby to be an addict. And um, but it's not, no way to treat another fellow human being. One thing uh, as well, I mean, and I think, Matt, and we often forget because we passed, the year has passed and at times perhaps we thought it wouldn't, but uh, the way AIDS people, patients that were treated in general in those years was really appalling. And I recall people like Princess Diana who sort of uh, tackled those kind of taboos. But And then you put that on top of the way prisoners are treated and... That's as, as 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 low as it as it kind of got. But there were you know? prejudices about how you would contract AIDS, and people literally physically shunned yeah. people with AIDS. I can imagine some prison officers probably wouldn't even have agreed to allow themselves to be handcuffed to that prisoner. Um, when you did, you you wore um, gloves, which you never do normally. You wore gloves. One of the things that on that chapter in particular, I gave to two colleagues of mine that had worked at that time with me. And to make sure that my memory of it was was what it was. And they agreed with every single word that was on paper. 
and these will be the type of people that would very quickly tell you, no, you're not, you know, you're looking at this completely wrong. They agreed with absolutely everything, even to the extent of a, another woman that um, worked in that area with me back in the day. She later became a governor, and I met her in the training college in Stackhouse some years later. Now, this would have been a tough cookie, this lady. And we started chatting about life in general, but it got around to the base and the seg unit and the eighth time that we worked together. And she actually started to cry to such an extent that she actually had to, uh, to, she, had to be, she went down to the ground as she went down. And this would be a tough girl. This wouldn't be, you know, shrink and violet by any means. But the memory of it to her was so severe that once talked about, it caused her to break down. Basically, I, 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 I just parked it. It only really came back to me. Have you ever had counselling? Me? No. Or is Mick affected by your counsellor by doing the book for you? He doesn't know it. No, no, he wouldn't let me lie on the couch and talk. He he used to make me sit in front of a computer. But um, no, a lot of people, look, I'm lucky. I'm very lucky. You see, I had this thing, Matt, of coming home and talking to my wife about work. 95% of prison officers will not do that. They'll speak to nobody about what goes on inside the prison. My wife was a, a nurse and actually at the time she was actually on what was called the AIDS program. She was working for two doctors in Klonski that were heading up and she was the chief researcher um, for the HSE. So she in understood. AIDS. Yeah, so she was able to talk to me. But I mean, I would have seen prison, everything that was served to these prisoners was on disposable. So it was paper cups, paper plates, plastic knives and forks, everything into a bin, everything into an incinerator. Because everyone thought if you touched a cup after they drank from it, you'd contact AIDS. Um, prison officers were in that area were never clean in their lives. They were washing their hands a hundred times a day. They were changing their uniforms, out of their uniforms before they could go home to their houses. You know, um, they, they, there was a lot of myths about it, how you could contact it. You know, if somebody sneezed in the vicinity of you, even if they didn't sneeze on you, the chances are you could catch it. Now, there was other things that did happen where there was needle sticks where prison officers um, would have got what they call um, stuck by a syringe. And that was harrowing because then you had to kind of isolate away from a lot of things like sex with your wife for a long period of time till you could be proven that you hadn't contacted uh, the virus. Earlier, you spoke to us about the gang of the 90s who were responsible for the murder of Veronica Guerin, who was a very, very good friend of mine. And I remember the dreadful days in the mid 1990s. And the gang were imprisoned. But what often seems to happen is that one gang gets imprisoned and another gang comes along and it's said that they're worse often in their behaviour and then they get imprisoned but do they behave worse inside in prison then as well like the likes of the Dundons or the Kinnahans or the Hutches? Well Larry Dunn famously said back in the 70s he said if you think we're bad you ought to see what's coming behind us and he was he was right um, so each one that's come along has been more vicious than the last um, respect for life is with them is non-existent loyalties change literally overnight so you saw things like the Dundon family so I would have dealt with Desi Wayne John and Nathan Killeen and they're hard to describe these guys and I think many people might forget but 20 years ago it's nearly 20 years ago Limerick was riven by the feud at the time between the drug gangs down there yeah and um I remember getting kind of, friendly is not the right word, but getting to a stage where I could actually talk to these people. And you'd often say, I remember saying to them one day, I said, look, who's actually with who? Because you're trying to pick it up from sometimes the papers. We had no real intelligence. You the know? Sunday world. The Sunday world. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mick. But the Sunday world. But um, the, um, like there was no real intelligence. 
And um, Frog Eyes McCarthy uh, just said around to me, he said, it changes. It changes today. We could be the best buds tomorrow. It changes. And that's what was happening. They were changing alliances all the time. Maybe because they fed out over drinks inside in the pubs. Um, well, it was all about territory and, and drugs. Yeah. Um, or the, also wives having roles outside the schoolyard. Yeah. The, the, the Dundons, I would have worked with them very, very... Probably no, Probably I can actually safely say that I worked with the Dundons more than anyone else did for a long period of time. And we broke them down bit by bit by bit. And um, Desi Dundon has a degree of intelligence. Wayne Dundon is a horrible talk. John Dundon is psychologically... He's, he's mad. Simple as that. And Nathan Killeen is... A cousin of theirs. Okay, right. And then the Kinnahans? Um, Kinnahans, Christy Kinnahan was the only one I really would have worked with that, say, of the Kinnahan gang. But he is obviously, you know, he's known as the, um, the Dapper Don. And he was back then incredibly intelligent. He was in a cell on the right-hand side of E1. I can remember very well at the time I was part of, working partly for the education unit. And he was doing courses that nobody else was doing. So he was doing open university courses and languages. He was very easy to deal with. He didn't cause any trouble in the prison. He kept his cell immaculate. He kept himself the same. Um, when he'd asked for something, if he was entitled to it, you gave it to him. If he wasn't, you'd explain it to him why or why you couldn't get it. And once there was an explanation there, he just took it. Um, he was the first one I've ever heard of because he was doing an open university course, he was given, and these would have been really back in the day when computers were just coming out nearly, you know, the real old computers. He was given a standalone computer to, that he could type on. And he was clever enough even back then. Internet was still fairly new, but he was able to rig up a mobile phone to give him internet access. You know, which no one, none of us even thought you could do that. You know, he was, he was brighter than the average bear. He was easy to talk to didn't speak a whole lot but when he did speak he was calm he was considerate and he was polite see that brings me to something else maybe so it's come towards conclusion because i don't want to give away everything that's in the book for all the people who are going to be i know this will be one of the christmas bestsellers and i think it'll be lots of people giving it as a gift for christmas but a lot of the people who end up in prison may come from limited educational background and, you know, may, some of them may not be the brightest and are easily manipulated. So what happens when you get a very sharp, bright person in prison, but you also know is a serious criminal? And I've got one example in particular, Graham Dwyer. See, when someone like them come in, they actually don't see themselves. They see themselves as victims. Yeah, because Graham Dwyer continues to deny that he was the yeah. ki- the killer of Elena yeah. Harris. Sorry, quick thing about that, Matt. Like, <clears throat> Graham Dwyer, we can say, is intelligent because he was an architect and obviously went to that part of society. You've huge, you've a lot of, not a lot, but there are a number of people in prison who'd be equally as intelligent, if not more. They just never had any opportunity of even gone beyond school or ambition or a- environment or whatever, you know. And there are a number, like Dave and some there are a number there who would be very intelligent. And I don't doubt that, at least. I suppose the point I'm getting to make with Graham Dwyer is that somebody who was 
academically qualified who'd had a certain style of life yeah. that he was used to, who was uh, living in what you might call middle class I'm circumstances and suddenly finds himself pitched into this environment that's, with people yeah. with whom he probably Absolutely, has limited yeah, prior engagement. That's what I'm interested trip, in as yeah. well. You see, un- unfortunately, uh, the society we live in, Graham DeWire came in and he very quickly had a, a fan base, Matt. What? A fan base. So certain women were writing into him. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I thought you meant the fan base was inside in the prison. Sorry, but it's... No, okay. no, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. My, my apologies. Um, no, so you had women writing into him on a regular basis. You had women sending him in things like underwear. Oh, that's equally as shocking, actually. Um, we, he hooked up with one lady who, at the time I was in charge of the operations support groups, uh, part of our thing is the screening areas and the dogs and what have you. And on many occasions, I couldn't let her in because she was trying to bring in nude photographs. And then, most appallingly, she sent in a used tampon that, of hers so that Graham could have her scent, as she said, that it was only a very natural thing. She didn't see anything wrong with it, that Graham wanted to have his scent in his bed so he could put the sanitary towel in wherever the bed pillow. She said that. Did he agree said, with that? Well, this is the conversation I had with her. Right. <laughs> this is the chat I had with her. So Graham then sent me, which I still have in my house to this day, a very long letter pleading with me to let her back in um, that he, she was his soulmate and that he needed her and his life was nothing without her. And I still actually have that letter. Um, he wrote this letter to me. Now, basically, I didn't like Raymond Dwyer because he was so sweet. He was never a good sheepdog of mine. 100 Graham Dwyer's, by the way, in prison. They're not troublesome. They're not prisoners that cause us bother. Um, but he would come and he'd be pretty much wringing the hands, you know, this whole, excuse me, Mr. MacDonald, please, Mr. Mac-. And you just try to go, f- sorry for using the language, but fuck off, you know, go away. Um, but he was getting letters like that from women and men, some men, not a lot, but some. Uh, and then he hooked up with this one. Yeah, but then what would the other prisoners think of him? Would he become a target? No, he'd be put in with the sex offenders. He has to be put in with the sex offenders. So we don't really do, um, we don't really, prisoners in Ireland, as opposed to the UK, where they grade prisoners. We don't. We really only have two grades. One, the ordinary criminal and the sex offenders. So someone like Raymond Dwyer will be put in with the sex offenders, which in a lot of cases are going to be a certain amount of clergy, old um, people that have committed rape, paedophiles, things like that. Sympathetic to Graham Dwyer? Just on on that, because I I wrote a book previously, Matt, about um, fellows who killed their wives. And in the course of researching that, it was pointed out to me in terms of when they go into prison, a lot of these people, not necessarily their education, but their emotional intelligence is such, naturally they've found guilty of murder, they're sentenced to life. They go in for the first few months, they might be tearing their hair out at what they've landed in, exactly what you were describing as somebody coming to a totally alien environment. But then they have the kind of emotional intelligence to settle down into the sentence, whereas you'd have other fellas going in there, perhaps who wouldn't have that kind of grasp, and they're going ape shit the whole time kind of thing, you know. So it, it, the, the psychology of that I just found a bit interesting. Actually, you just put something else in my mind, Mick, with that, this idea that people settle down. That I suppose maybe the perception to a lot of people is when you get into prison, it's how quickly you can serve your sentence and get out. But so, Dave, how often do people just actually settle down and actually realise I'm here for five years, I'm here for ten or whatever, so I'll just make it as easy as I can for myself in that time. You see, 
they have no choice. You know, the regime in a prison is the same every day. Christmas Day, 365 days a year. They're unlocked at a certain time. They're locked at a certain time. They get a certain amount of hours in the yard, a certain amount in a rec hall. Um, they are allowed a 30-minute visit a week. And they just come, that regime kind of comes into their brain and then they just work within it. Some will try and do anything to try and alleviate the boredom, uh, try and study or whatever, but not many. Some might even try and pick up a new talent, like learn to play the guitar or whatever, but again, not many. Um, what amazes me, Matt, is sometimes what still come people, like for example, Midlands Prison at the moment would have, to, as of today, about 840 prisoners. Approximately half of them would be sex offenders. A good whack of them would be in for crimes against children, paedophiles, basically. And it never ceased to amaze me the amount of wives that came in religiously every Saturday to visit a man who physically and mentally abused both of their children. And they co- she'd come in week after. And I, I, if I ever had it again, I'd love to have take one of them and say, why? Why? On even on certain occasions, you would see that where a father might have abused one child, the sister of that child might come in to visit. And I never really understood it. Now, someone like Graham with the wire, his wife, as soon as she could, she could complete ties. She never came into the prison. Um, Joe O'Reilly, for example, his partner, the one he was having the affair with when he killed his wife, she came in religiously week after week after week. And then it got to the stage where she was coming in and bringing Joe O'Reilly's children in with her to the prison every week. So, and then there's other cases like Desi Dundon, his partner is Kira Killeen, and Desi Dundon is in for the best part of 20 years and Kira Killeen has been coming in without fail every single week to visit him. So there is a certain amount of loyalty from the outside. There's certainly the one where the wife is coming in to visit the husband who's sexually... Um, assaulted and mentally assaulted their, their children why I, that to me baffles me I don't understand why Okay let's start wrapping this up Mick Clifford from this whole experience of writing the book what has it taught you about Ireland? Uh, Ireland geez, I don't know Matt um, Well Irish society yeah, as yeah. you say it, it, it's are we that different from other western societies in terms of our penal policy Possibly not. Possibly some are harsher. The US, I would say, is definitely harsher. As I said, the likes of the Northern European countries are not. They're they're more enlightened with it. I suppose it reflects other things. For example, John Lonergan is somebody who was always saying that the vast majority of prisoners who were in Mountjoy when he was governor came from those few postcode areas. And I think that really hits on something in that come back again to there being no political traction, that it is basically poor people go to prison. And if anybody thinks for a second that poor people have less morality than those of us who are middle class or whatever, that doesn't stack up for a second. So from that point of view, you know, it does not reflect well on society. And equally, the fact that we there is no effort made to have, as I said before, that business of an enlightened type of a policy that'll be better for everybody that'll be better from potential crime victims for perpetrators and for society at large Dave to finish with you what sort of reaction have you had to this book from former colleagues and just from people in general Um, I'm surprised uh, usually surprised because I actually expected a certain amount of kickback because I say I live very close to Port Leash um, so I would see prison officers on a regular basis Um, I will still have a lot of friends that are both retired with me around my time are still working in the prison. I have had nothing but positivity 
Um, and I, I found that very, very strange. I was expecting to get a couple of um, midnight calls, literally, on the phone, telling me I was this, that, and the other. Not one. I've had officers coming up to me in Port Leash on the main street, giving me a man hug. Um, I've had text messages from numerous, I'd say 40, 50 prison officers, um, telling me that they've bought the book, they read it, so good, so true. I've had prison officers ringing into radio shows um, afterwards saying that they worked with me and that um, they had read the book and it was a fantastic read. I've had men coming to me and saying, look, my, now my children understand what it was like to work in the prison because they would, their, you know, um, their sons and daughters now would be of an age where they were in their 20s, where their father worked in the prison. They didn't really understand what he did for a living, really. He said he was a prison officer with a title, but now they understand what his job was. Um, so it's, it's, I'm, I'm amazed, Matt, but it's all been extremely positive. It's going to be a Christmas bestseller, I think. It's uh, one of the most insightful books into Ireland that's come out in a long time. It's Unlocked, an Irish prison officer's story by David MacDonald with Michael Clifford. Dave, Mick, thank you both very much for taking time to join me today for the Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast. Thanks, Matt. And that's the final Magnified of 2022. Thank you if this is your first time listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. There are many, many more that we've done earlier in the year. If you've been listening to the series, thank you very much. We hope that you've enjoyed the variety of the people that we have interviewed. We always look forward to suggestions as well from you. And there are plenty organised for 2023. So we hope that you'll be able to join us for a whole new year of Magnified. Until then, happy Christmas and a happy new year.